Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Mark Hu and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Mark Hu, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I am joined by Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Hey everybody, excited to be here as always. And Dr. Nigga Marora. Morning everybody. And joining us for the first time this week is Monica Villalpando, founder and CEO of Via Innovations, a pharmaceutical formulation scientist with expertise focusing on insoluble drugs. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So, so listener, we have a great show for you today for our popular science and news articles. We'll discuss the DEA widening the path for medical cannabis research, uh, as well as talking about trying ayahuasca as a senior citizen, a little New York Times expose. We'll discuss some ethical issues and the decolonization movement for the psychedelic industry. And we're going to end that part of our show with a discussion on cannabis in the yoga practice. Good idea, bad idea. Eh, we will see. Uh, and then our science discussion will focus on a meditation and marijuana article from the American Journal of Psychiatry. And we'll end our science discussion about a study on how different musical genres can support psychedelic therapy. And as usual, we'll end our show with a game. All right. We'll be right back in about 30 seconds. Enjoy the music and a quick message while we sharpen our pencils. And now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. So our first article comes to us from the Wall Street Journal and is about the DEA widening the path for medical cannabis research. Now, um, being in this space for, Lord, about 18 years, I feel like every year after Christmas, I hear... Uh, that the U.S. government is expanding the number of businesses that can grow marijuana for federally approved studies. And, you know, I, I really want to believe this is real. Um, it seems that this might actually allow uh, federally legal cannabis for scientists, for doctors. Um, but I am skeptical. So, you know, Sarah, you, you know, you work under a DEA license and you walk this fine line between trying to do studies that you know can be applied to the real cannabis world um but what are your thoughts on this announcement is 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 it something we should get excited about is there more reservation there well i am an eternal optimist so yes i was re-excited all over again when i read this announcement as you're saying for for the umpteenth time um but yeah i can't emphasize enough how important this is to researchers and scientists. And, and as most of you know, you know, the work that I do is preclinical work, um, testing cannabinoids in rats and mice. And you know, believe it or not, it's still challenging for us to get access to relevant cannabis products. Um, 
So this, this won't only be a major advancement for clinical researchers who will uh, hopefully have available to them a wider um, variety of cannabis, um, you know, um, compounds to test clinically. But, you know, as importantly, or, or in some ways, if not more importantly, it will help preclinical researchers to be more clinically relevant and translatable. Uh, so yesterday and the day before, I spent the day on a review panel reviewing government grants. And, you know, this happens every time we review grants or I write grants. There's a grant to study in rats and mice cannabis cultivars. And uh, we just, we don't have them available. And if somehow we do uh, decide to introduce a uh, hemp cultivar, for example, into our preclinical research. It's going to be locally sourced. It's going to be difficult to provide quality assurance information on what exactly is in there. And then it would be nearly impossible for someone across the country to try to replicate those findings in their laboratory. So there is just an enormous, enormous need for other commercial vendors to be able to provide cannabis cultivars to clinical and preclinical researchers um thank you for that overview um definitely exciting um stuff hopefully on the horizon uh monica you know you're working in the cannabis industry formulating products um would increasing the number of federal sources for cannabis you know be a boon for for business do you think or would it just bring in more questions. I mean, what are, I guess, what are your hopes and concerns about, you know, if any, about this announcement from the DEA? No, I'm absolutely thrilled. So before I started working with cannabinoids, my background is in pharmaceutical sciences, and I worked in both preclinical and clinical uh, formulation development. Uh, where we are in the cannabis space, oftentimes we don't have the budget or working with clients that necessarily to jump into that clinical um, uh, landscape, um, in addition to the regulatory hurdles. Um, going to your point, Sarah, uh, there's a, that's a huge benefit for the preclinical, because the more we understand on the preclinical side, we can make better predictions on the clinical level, which will then save companies a whole lot of money. So it just opens up a lot more resources for testing. Um, in addition to that, if we take it back into um, more of the formulation focus and where the formulation and the um, efficacy and the safety outcome come into play is where... I have been struggling a lot for a number of reasons in the space uh, because of that. Like, for example, we are working on different approaches to uh, enhance the uptake or the efficacy, um, but oftentimes you can't really determine and really hone in on that in a lab setting. You have to have those um, the access to these type of studies to really uh, push it forward and reduce the overall variability in the experience for the entire industry. That's a, those are some really good points, you know, and, I, and I'm trying to think, you know, if, you know, Nigam, you want to add or comment on Sarah or Monica's, you know, discussion here, um, I feel like it's been pretty well covered, but I'm going to give you a chance to chime in. No, I, I think I'll uh, defer. I think I'll defer to them, but I support what, what they're both saying, especially what Sarah was saying. And just, and actually what you were saying too, Jahan, I guess I'm just kind of like cheerleading here from the side on this one, like, I also have been 
you know, hearing it year after year. I guess that was actually my reaction when I read the article. I was like, really? Really this time? I mean, obviously, I hope so. I want. Um, yeah. I think everybody wants. So we'll see hopefully it it's not it's not one of those like typical government things where like it exists, but we won't give out the award to anyone. <laughs> oh, clearly there's a pathway to approve cannabis for pharmaceutical, you know, market approval. But, uh, you know, no one uh, seems to be able to come up with uh, the the standard. I think um, the, uh, so, sorry, sorry, Jayhan, I guess the last thing I would say is that it's just like it's so crucial for being competitive even. I mean, I've been working on like organizing this uh, symposium about uh, like molecular mechanisms for like cannabis action on specific medical conditions and all this stuff. And I'm like looking up authors of all these cool papers and corresponding with them. And they're all in Canada and they're all in Australia and they're all in New Zealand and they're all in Israel. And, and that's, that's cool. I'm, you know, I'm happy to network with these people and bring their research to the fore. But as you've said, Jehan, you know, I'd love to get that hometown pride on it too. You know, I'd love to be able to invite people from my own nation to come and do this because they have access to uh, this type of stuff. So I guess I did have something to say about it. Excellent. Well, um, while we sit and wait with bated breath for the DEA to give out new licenses and expand the federal program, something even Mahmoud El-Soli, the, who runs the Mississippi farm, is in favor of because he says, I can't keep up with the demand. I can't produce enough products to keep up with what people want. He, he, he himself has been asking for this. Um, so we're going to move on to our next story, one that I think is fascinating um, from the New York Times, and it's about trying ayahuasca when you're a senior citizen. So in the sort of with our elders trying ayahuasca and psychedelics and going on retreats and things, what was surprising to me on the article was that there is a difference. Apparently at some age, you start, you know, thinking less about your career, uh, maybe getting over substance abuse issues, maybe being more creative and start just wondering why you're here and what is your purpose. And that seems to, that was really surprising to me. And, you know, Sarah, I'm going to go to you again first. I promise I won't go to you first for the other stuff, you know, give you a break. But, you know, when it comes to drug uh, research in animals, there are potentially age differences and how it affects animals. And I guess I just wanted to kind of get your perspective. You know, does it surprise you that, you know, there's kind of a say, you know, differences between, you know, how elders may perceive the utility of psychedelics versus, you know, a 28 year old or a 30 year old. Um, did that surprise you? Or are you like, oh, that makes total sense. Um, no, and I think we've touched on this before with psychedelics, and I think we've probably talked about it with cannabinoids as well. You know, one of the conversations I have often with clinicians, rightly so, is, you know, side effects, safety. And I think that's a different conversation to have with different populations, different indications. And for both cannabis as well as psychedelics, this becomes an important conversation when you consider palliative care and end-of-life care. So not to be morbid and make that immediate <laughs> link between the elderly and, and those types of topics, uh, I think there is a, a little bit of a unique way to look at the place of cannabis and psychedelics 
um, you know, for those populations. And I think you can't have the same conversation about how safe are these drugs for adolescents versus how safe are these drugs for people who are facing the end of life and may want to have access. And then, of course, there's the other side of that where elderly people will have different health considerations and are, will be on specific medications. You know, they mentioned cardiovascular um, risks that you want to be careful of. And I think, you know, that just highlights, again, the importance of while we are excited about the potential for cannabinoids and psychedelics um, for as pharmacotherapies, we can't forget to think about the you know specific adverse effects that might occur in certain populations with underlying conditions or uh, different medications. But I thought the article was very cool, and I think it's really interesting to think at think about the different reasons why different populations are interested in these compounds and, and what the slightly different conversations are surrounding that. Thank you. Um, you know, Monica, with your experience in the industry, and maybe you can draw on some of your experience from drug development, do you see parallels with like cannabis or other products with this type of thing? Like, um, you know, I imagine um, for, for via innovations, you know, you might have one product being purchased by many different age groups and people with different backgrounds and are they using the products for the same thing or is there you know a little bit of uh differences in why people choose products yeah absolutely um if we're thinking about the elderly uh, well let me just take a step back and any product that we develop we look at a target product profile so that not only tells us around the efficacy we're going after, the it's also the consumer experience and the market and what where, why are we even making this product? What is what is it solving for this person? Um, so even a topical, um, oftentimes a topical products are very popular amongst the elderly because it, it's non-ingestible. They're oftentimes dealing with aches and pains. Um, I, I think a really interesting uh, trend that I'm noticing in the industry with cannabis is if you can get older consumers to even try it, they'll notice a lot less of a side effects um, when compared if they're taking the ibuprofen or any of the opioids that they're dealing with for their chronic issues. So integrating, you're seeing more integration and seamlessly into different lifestyles and especially the um, non-psychotropic cannabinoids too are, are taking a rise. I think if you want to parallel that over to psychedelics, now I know from more recreational <laughs> experiences in my studies, I'm interested in, in um, pushing in that avenue. And I see them as very complementary um, forms of relief of whatever you're trying, to, whatever's ailing you mentally, physically, and with, with psychedelics, um, even now going into an experience and my intention on why I'm going into it is very different than when I was younger. And I think for older people, it has a great um, value in accepting maybe some past life traumas some relationships that you want to clear up, um, knowing that your, your time on this planet is, is rounding down. I think it would be very um, beneficial for, for the elderly in that regard. Excellent point. Um, you know, uh... Nigam, um, what surprised you about this article 
Um, was there something, you know, as you were scanning it and, and thinking about it, was there something that, that jumped out at you? Um, I just, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, I, I guess uh, I'm kind of going to answer a, a different question than what you asked, but I really thought it was cool for just seeing these people like share this experience. And I think there's this other thing in our society where like young people, you kind of expect young people to do kind of like new or novel or risky things. So for me, just reading this article and, and reading about uh, older folks getting into it and having these experiences, I think it maybe is going to accelerate the reduction in stigma surrounding these things. I think it's already going pretty fast with psychedelics. They have this kind of blessed status of some of them, MDMA, psilocybin, getting this, you know, breakthrough therapy from the status from the FDA and all this. So it's all like moving her fast, fastly. The stigma is going away so much faster than cannabis. I mean, I'm a little bit jealous, but, um, you know, I, uh, we're just happy to, to see that. Um, and would like to see more of it. would like to see more different, uh, segments of our society and communities that you wouldn't necessarily think, Oh, they're a psychedelics user or they're a cannabis user. Um, we want to see more people kind of explore and kind of benefit from it. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I really liked was towards the end of the article, Mr. Kilkenny um, talked about his journey and feeling always this sort of need for affection, this neediness, this um, sort of constant validation. And after this guided experience, there's this beautiful quote is, my life is a lot quieter and it's a lot more peaceful, less seeking, less grasping, less needing, and less fear. I thought that was a really fascinating uh, quote and just, you know, really good job by, by the journalist on this article. And I'm definitely, I've already got the audiobook for When Plants Dream, the, the book that's referenced in the article. And, and you know, as, you, as, as we've all sort of commented on, you know, it's our hope to develop these products to help as many people as possible and to minimize risks and unwanted effects. You know, however, there is an unfortunate kind of history here with the pharmaceuticalization of any sort of ethnobotanical product that you know sort of indigenous people have used for thousands of years and that moves us to our next story which is on the decolonization movement this is called, this is to articles from neo.life inside the movement to decolonize psychedelic uh, pharmaceutical development and you know, Nigam, I want to go to you because this is something we've discussed. Some articles from Double Blind Mag have also covered this. But, you know, when you read about these stories about, you know, the indigenous healer who becomes popularized after famous scientists like Wasson goes down there, writes about them, a bunch of white people go down there, start taking mushrooms for healing ceremonies, and then she ends up being raided constantly by police and labeled a drug dealer. And then decades later, it's a multi-billion dollar industry and everyone's doing what this person was doing. And even perhaps even in a more uncontrolled fashion with less experience, you know, and so the heart of the matter is how can we not repeat the same kind of mistakes we're starting to see in other industries? Um, what would make a better corporation, a better company in the psychedelic space? 
Wow. Okay. So I'm going to try to unpack a little bit of that. There's a lot of, <laughs> I know I, f- I fired a lot at you there. So you <laughs> no, can, you can set, you can, you can pass some off to the, to our other guests. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we, we have uh, so many great minds here. I'm curious to hear what everyone else thinks, but I, I guess I'll just comment briefly. So it's, it's a really important topic. It's spoken about in the cannabis industry, but the, you know, state by state kind of a approach or attempted solution to like equity and cannabis is kind of, I mean, we've seen some good things, but I think uh, folks who are familiar with it have all seen also a lot of failings. I hate to use that word, but it's not, we're not seeing such a huge amount of equity there. Um, really? So anyways, to bring it to psychedelics, it is exciting to have another opportunity and that's not just with the equity thing that's kind of across the board i mean there are a lot of things that could go better this time around but um so far as people being you know prosecuted persecuted before and then seeing this you know becoming legal now saying you know billion dollar companies on the stock exchange with you know these psychedelics therapies it is a little bit uh gut-wrenching you know and i I'm trying to imagine being someone like this who is doing it for years with the best intention, you know, in this kind of window of prohibition. So anyways, um, we're seeing a lot of the, you know, the kind of land grab money grab. Um, our friend Rod Kite was on the show saying that when we were, you know, on the clash of psychedelics episode, similar thing. So I, I'm almost just like sharing background thoughts here, but it's really hard to say, Jahan, like, where does it go? Um, what, you know, what do we see? What do companies who sign up as a benefit corp actually do? Like, what is their action? I'm, you know, it's fun to talk about things here on the podcast, but when it comes to change, when it comes to making meaningful things happen, it's it's just the action that matters so much. So Let's see. Let's see what some of these companies do. Um, let's see what they can learn from the, the lessons of cannabis. And that that's kind of where I'm at. I'm kind of waiting. I'm kind of watching. So, thank you, Jacob. So, uh, Monica, I'm going to ask you this, and um, don't consider it so much as a direct question as a prompt um, for a discussion. But you know, how far are we away from the THC infused, you know, mocha latte dusted with psilocybin? Um, is is that like the direction this is going and that's going to be like our worst case scenario that people will be ordering these types of things on an app and picking it up at their local Starbucks? Um, you know, what are your thoughts about this article? Do you see um, sort of that sort of light speed product, you know, um, diversification or do you think there's, it's going to be going a, a little bit different pathway? Yeah, it's a, it was a really great article. And to just tack onto what Nigam said, I'm, I am kind of sitting back and seeing where it goes. We are still figuring it out with cannabis and its complexity. Um, and especially because the, with psychedelics, the experience, not, not just the preparation beforehand, the experience during, and even afterwards, you know, if there's a sense of community um, to, to that, that finished outcome. And I think that's really hard to emulate in that type of setting. 
if I were to just look into my crystal ball and way, way, way down the future when regular regulatory is lifted, I could see like at certain places above certain ages um, of like a maximum of a five or 10 milligram dose of psilocybin that you could sprinkle on your smoothie or something as like, instead of your wheatgrass shot, but it would be after like, I'm talking 20 years from now. I'm not going to go to my uh, <laughs> local Brooklyn juice shop and be like, let me get some kale, apple, celery. Uh, those mushrooms look good. Throw those in there. But we are seeing more of a trend just in overall mushroom consumption and an awareness there. And mushrooms are very healthy for us, whether they're uh, they're psychoactive or not. So I think just even that I appreciate it because I eat a lot more mushrooms now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you know, mushrooms are such an interesting natural product. And, And one of the things I hope that this podcast can help people do is talk about them accurately is I often hear them referred to by as plants and and they're not plants. They don't photosynthesize. They're, they're the great decomposers and they also grow at night. And and what's interesting is just, you know, non, you know, excluded just mushrooms in general actually have a low caloric intake because calories are a measure of things that, uh, you know, photosynthesize and eat things that are, you know, have, um, sort of that light energy in it. And so it's a very interesting food. Andrew Weil has some great works on uh, mushrooms and just general, you know, what they mean and what they symbolize. And I really firmly believe there are two types of people in this world. There are mycophobes and mycophiles, those that love mushrooms and those that think they're disgusting. Um, you know, Sarah, I want to ask you a research question about um mushrooms. And this article brought up some interesting points that I have not really seen with other areas of study. And it's, it's two things. And again, it's just a prompt. If it's, if it's, if I'm being too tricky here, you know, feel free to um, pretend I asked a better question, but you know, this article talks about two things. One, uh, when it comes to research and policy and maybe even product development, bringing indigenous people to the table for those discussions Um, because these products, you know, they might have a lot of sort of ancestral knowledge. Um, Oral tradition goes deep. Um, And also, you know, when we talk about um, minorities who are uh, potentially most impacted by the drug war, you know, when we're thinking about, is it too complicated to say, okay, we need indigenous cultures to help guide the North star for research directives. And we have to make sure that we include not just like 99% white people in a study, like one of the studies we'll discuss from the 70s later today was like 99% white. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this brings us back to uh, something Nigam said about Canada. And I've mentioned a few times on this show, my Canada envy. Uh, So, you know, when I review grants for Health Canada, Uh, they actually have a whole indigenous people's consideration. And so each grant, when we review it, we have to comment and take into consideration how the research would impact the indigenous peoples of Canada. You know, is are the is the health topic specifically important to them? Is the drug that you're talking about something that could be uh, particularly dangerous for them because we know substance abuse rates are often higher in indigenous peoples? So uh, it's definitely 
something you know that is really important to bring up. And I think something else that Monica touched on that I think is important. I know I often make comparisons between cannabis and the psychedelics, but I think here it's an interesting distinction, as Monica said, this experiential part, which we've talked about before in trying to understand the relative importance of the experiential component to using psychedelics uh, therapeutically, which is what I'm most interested in. And I actually think, you know, we talk a lot about stigma and I think, you know, as Nigam mentions, it's important to work on reducing the stigma of the drugs. It's also important to reduce the stigma of mental illness. And I think this increase in talking about, and you know, all of these articles today touch on this well-being. You know, uh, hopefully we are in a new revolution where we all understand the importance of improving our mental health, talking about well-being. And as a Western civilization, I think we are probably most at, at risk of of struggling with with you know, well-being. There's this, you know, GDH thing that I hear people talk about countries with the highest gross domestic happiness quotient. And it's not Western countries <laughs> that are really good at this. It's like right? Finland or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, uh, yeah, you know, not, not the United States. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully, as well as it's important to protect the indigenous peoples and resources that are the inspiration and the, the you know ancient sources of of these products is hopefully it will improve our respect for their ancient knowledge and especially with psychedelics if it's integral to their success and effectiveness that's going to have to be part and parcel i think of of how we think about psychedelics as medicine but I, it was a really, really uh, well done article and really thought provoking. Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. And I just think of just basic things that I'd love to hear about grad students doing, like trying to do all the chemical varieties of all the types of mushrooms that exist. You're definitely going to need the help of indigenous people in identifying where they grow, how they grow. Uh, oh, it's on this hillside and this gully. There's these you know, special ones here. And really seeing what's the difference between those different, you know, dare I say, cultivated varieties, although it's hard um, sometimes to imagine mushrooms as being cultivated outside because so much happens um, where we can't see it, almost like in, you know, the Earth's subconscious. Um, but, you know, you know, moving on with our kind of discussion about wellness, um, I want to talk about bringing cannabis into yoga practice. And there's this article from civilized about how to bring cannabis into your yoga practice. And, you know, there are, I guess, two schools of thought on this. One is great idea. It will enhance uh, our activity. And then there's another thought that's how the heck can you pull this off in a standardized form? Are people just going to bring in a bunch of random products and everyone's taking a different product and getting different outcomes? Um, you know, I'm not sure how to feel about this. <laughs> so Monica, maybe we could just start with you. You know, from what I understand, you have extensive background in yoga. Um, you've, you've taught it in the past. So tell us a little bit about your background with yoga and um, what your definition of yoga is for the listener. 
so the definition of yoga is union, the connection of mind and body, yoke. So that, um, and, and that is in sort of the yoga school of philosophy goes through the eight limbs of yoga. And I view the first four limbs as sort of the, the body and then the last four limbs as the mind. And that's really the connection. So the first part is around being mindful of what you put in your body, how you speak to other people, your breath work, your physical activity. And those are the first four. And then it links over to the mind in that you have your concentration, your sensory withdrawal, your meditation, and then your samadhi, sort of the enlightenment stage. Um, and so there are so many different schools of yoga and they all fall within this general philosophy. Um, some might emphasize other areas more than others, um, just depending on your preference. I, I like to compare yoga to music in the sense that everyone loves music, but you don't always like the same type of music. Um, so that's so that's one. Um, but my background, uh, I started like well, I've been practicing for over 15 years. Um, I started my first teacher training when I was living in Belgium, uh, in addition to doing my PhD research. Uh, that was my <laughs> escape from the lab um, and onto the mat. And then I had been teaching consistently since 2012. And then I stopped when I started um, Via Innovations about four years ago. Um, so I'll teach some friends. But throughout that process, my uh, style has changed. Um, I've also been consuming cannabis uh, throughout that entire time. But interestingly enough, I didn't combine cannabis in, into my yoga practice until five years ago. So it was 10 years that I did both quite frequently, but I didn't combine them actually um, because I thought that consuming cannabis would make me lazy and not just kind of want to lay around and not get into my flow because I I prefer a very like, sativa type practice, very A type personality. I like to move. I like to sweat. I don't want to lay around. If I know you. So um, it wasn't until I found a certain school of, and, and thought and practice of integrating it that way that I was like, whoa, where has this been my entire life? Like, why haven't I done this? Um, so, you know, I love that, that you talked about how you kind of did it in each in a vacuum before you combined it. You know, you, you did the yoga by itself. You did cannabis without the yoga, and then, then you combine them. And I think that's a really smart approach. And, you know, before I, I move on to another guest, I wanted to maybe get your opinion, um, you know, uh, your thoughts on this is, you know, cannabis might affect people differently in, in different situations. You know, imagine if it's a very intense, you know, yoga practice um, and your body's dehydrated, you know, from that a little bit, people might pass out from like doing some dabs and then doing like 108 sun salutations and, you know, vasodilation maybe isn't a great combination there, but, you know, and I also think about things like, well, maybe it actually enhances the muscle relaxing properties of doing yoga, or maybe it makes people a little anxious and they're too tense. I know that, um, you know, in my kettlebell kickboxing instruction, I've definitely worked with people who are cannabis consumers and they kind of like tense up when they're doing little boxing things. And I constantly have to be like, lower your shoulders, relax. But again, that's a little more, um, active than, um, uh, I guess a different type of activity than yoga. And so I kind of want to just get your, your thoughts on, um, that because yoga also has an effect on metabolism and glucose levels and, and cannabis can affect your metabolism and glucose levels and 
just sort of like comment on that, or I guess, you know, maybe with my rambling point is where, where are the kind of the guardrails for people who are considering bringing cannabis into their yoga practice? Yeah. So I would say first get comfortable with your yoga practice or be very comfortable with cannabis, but don't start both at the same time. Um, in the same way that you would approach a cannabis edible, the, that's how I would, the integration of both of the two together combines. Um, I mentioned I do a pretty intense, uh, more vinyasas, handstands, arm balances, and it cannabis consumption helps me. So I actually disagree with the author, what she said, because um, going back to the breath, it's once you if you're in a handstand, the second you think I'm in a handstand, you're going to fall right out of it. And I've noticed that when you're, when I've been a bit high and I'm in my handstand, I'm just in my flow. I'm just in my element. I'm a lot more in the now um, and aware of my body, my movement. And so that's been able to enhance not only more um, physically um, stringent activities to really get my mind in focus, um, but it's also helped the meditation component. I don't always use cannabis um, when I practice often, but I also don't always hop in a handstand. So um, with cannabis and your yoga practice, it's all about studying and learning yourself and what works for you, what your dosage, how you feel the day. If I practice this morning versus tonight, it's going to be very different and versus like Sunday um, versus Friday. So that would be my main thing. And then one thing that I want to see more out of the industry and I'm pushing it internally and on our research because there is such a gap is healthier products, um, more faster onset so you can build it into your yoga practice. But there's um, a, still a lot of um, consumption, combustion, vaping, and I love flour too. Uh, however, the whole component, like the main component with yoga is your breath and doing different breath exercises. So why take a big old dab right before you're going to try and <laughs> de detox your breath from just walking around, you know, market street in San Francisco. So it depends on what you're trying to achieve and, and the effect. But, um, and then the other thing I would also say is people assume that if you want to do something active to take a sativa type of product, that'll get you all energized and that can actually overdo it. So times when I've done something very like high in sativa and I've gone into uh, one of my yoga classes, it'll take me a minute to, after like a few uh, sun salutations to calm down. So more of a hybrid, start with a hybrid and see how you flow, you know, neutral. Cause some people might still prefer more of that hyper. So we're all, we're all different. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, man. I, I have so many more questions. I'd love to talk to you, Monica, about. There's, there's a lot of aspects of yoga and fitness and balance. Um, so maybe we could we definitely have to have you back to talk about yoga, sports medicine, and, and that intersection. It's definitely um, one of our favorite, at least one of my favorite subjects, or therefore one of our favorite subjects to talk about. Um, uh, and so, Sarah, I want I want to move to you. And uh, you know, does yoga have a cannabis problem? And what I mean by that is, you know in the sense that there's a small number of studies there's, you know, yoga practice can be highly variable between instructors and it's difficult maybe to determine what's affecting the change. And now people are trying to look at these outcomes in maybe like whether it's for their subjective effects, maybe it's 
for research into wellness. And then we're starting to see things like cannabis and yoga. Okay. On the scale of tolerability, that's on my very high tolerability scale. That seems reasonable. And then I see things like beer yoga and I'm like, okay, that's lower on the tolerability index. Then there's like wine yoga. And I'm like, God, this is really reminding me of something Sarah might've studied in college is combining all these drugs with an activity, but, you know, share us with your thoughts, you know, on this, this, this topic. Yeah, I have, I had a lot of thoughts on this topic. And again, kudos to the people who chose these articles to put together in an episode, because I think they're, I mean, they all just flow so well together. And I have almost the same comments for each one of these articles. Um, but, you know, also, as as most of you know, if you've heard other podcasts that I've been on before, I'm very honest with when my stigma alarms go off. And as you know, in a former life, most of my research was in substance abuse. And so, yeah, cannabis and yoga for me, was like, um, no, <laughs> you know, I'll just be honest with my sort of like gut reaction. It's you like, don't want to stand on one <laughs> foot with your arms like thrown out and yeah. Well, I don't do cannabis or yoga, so I, I shouldn't do, Ooh, I would be but, the one starting both at the same time. <laughs> Nobody, a, a double bias. As if anybody's say. ever tried to see me dance at a wedding, the coordination <laughs> is not my forte. Um, but you know, I think, you know, having the substance abuse research background and and thinking about introducing um, mind-altering substances into daily activities. That's not something that's in my comfort zone. Um, You know, and something else that I've brought up on the show before, um, you know, I spend a lot of time going into the community and talking about substance abuse, especially to young people. I was recently uh, contacted by a school system in New Jersey uh, to come in and talk to the kids about cannabis because New Jersey just passed adult use uh, legal cannabis. And and the school system is worried about, does this send a message now that cannabis is safe? And I think um, in an area where we talk about mindfulness and uh, you know, as Monica was talking about, you know, thinking about the substances that are you're putting into your body and this whole wellness thing, um, I think it it calls for increased vigilance in education and conversation about the relative safety of cannabis. You know, I not to throw a wet blanket on the conversation, but cannabis use disorder is real and cannabis dependence continues to be on the rise. Um, so those are, you know, some of my thoughts with it. On the opposite end of the spectrum with this article and the next article that we'll talk about in the science piece is at the same time, I'm really excited about this potential synergy between alternative or complementary therapies, meditation, yoga, and pharmacotherapies. Um, And someone who's interested in, you know, synergies and how two things can work together. Um, And again, we'll talk about this when we talk about the first science article, is meditation a gateway to us using psychedelics and cannabis to improve achieving better well-being 
Or as the next article talks about, is it the opposite that maybe more meditation and more yoga is a conduit to less substance use? Or are, are the two a great combination for some people that need to be explored? So I'm totally, as always, totally open to research and the answers are in the investigations to see, you know, what, what are the good ideas and, and where do we need to uh, exert some caution? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. Um, and, and Monica, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on some of the things Sarah talked about, um, because definitely I just love the sort of the yin and yang here approach to, to the discussion. But first, you know, from my own perspective and learning about yoga in, in my own kind of, you know, during the pandemic, we all got uh, hobbies and I chose to like <laughs> study sports medicine and physical therapy. And the way I learned about yoga, even though I practiced it on and off, was that it was actually part of a martial art and it was specifically targeted towards young boys. And a lot of the yoga exercises were warm-ups and exercises and conditioning for doing this mud wrestling that still goes on in India. So if you've ever seen this thing where like they're in a room and there's like red mud on the floor and guys are wrestling around, um, that was very much part of the ancient tradition of yoga. And it was to focus the mind and discipline the mind and keep kids from getting out of trouble. Um, and I, you know, and if you're really interested in that, look it up. It's a really fascinating um, version of where yoga uh, came from. Um, but you know, uh, <laughs> Monica, I just like to get your thoughts on some of the things Sarah said. Any final comments on this subject? I mean, obviously, cannabis as well as substances affect people differently. Some people do yoga; they love it. Some people do yoga; they hate it. Um, but you know, just sort of a Anything else you'd like to add to the discussion before we move on? Yeah, just quickly, because I agree that education is very, very important. And the normalization puts us in a scary pathway. Um, more recently, actually working with Nigam on, on the cannabis for athletes, I interviewed a number of athletes. And one of them was a substance abuse, a recovered um, drug abuse, um, and used yoga as a tool to, to fight that, but he was okay with, with a little, with CBD topical. So I think it's a type of product and how you're incorporating it. And if I think of when I, in my research, I interviewed a, a large number of many different types of athletes there, they needed help with aches and pains. Um, and a lot of, and that's oftentimes external. And so that's a really, really interesting way that, uh, I, an unmet need in not just for yoga, but all um, athletes space. And I think if we pull away from the, the, the psycho act or the psychotropicity of uh, THC and, and, a, and more into uh, say non psychotropic compounds like CBD, we're seeing CBG come into play a bit more, even we can work on the uh, THC space, the THCA, there's a lot of um, awareness that we can draw and benefits that we can just help the industry as a whole because everyone's looking for pain and recovery inflammation anxiety in some way shape or form and athletes are doing that too it's just a matter of positioning it in a way um and that's why a part of the reason i did disagree with with um that article because there was there wasn't enough about the health component it was more about let's get high and then let's lay around on a mat and so let's pull away from that and know like we can use cannabis to um you know decorate our floors to put clothes onto our backs um, in addition to help us recover um, from our aches and pains. So that's, that's just the one component I wanted to add to that. 
Thank you, Monica. And thank you, Sarah, for that fascinating discussion about yoga. I really enjoyed that. And I would love to do a part two of cannabis and yoga. So listener, if you enjoyed that, let us know. We're going to take a short break for 30 seconds with the music and a little quick message. And we'll come back with rapid fire science. Hello, I'm Ron Kite from Kite Law, legal advocacy for a burgeoning industry. You can reach me at cannabusiness.law or directly rod at cannabusiness.law. Hello and welcome back. We're now into our rapid fire segment and our first article is published in 1974 entitled Meditation and Marijuana with a J. Um, and that's from the American Journal of Psychiatry. Um, this is a fascinating article uh, found through the help of the Wayback Machine and even contains some interesting history about the practice of transcendental meditation. A uh, questionnaire was administered to a predominantly white group of people. I think something like 99% of the control subjects were white. Um, so at least we can say for Caucasians that transcendental meditation may have an effect on cannabis use. Um, one little cute thing I will note about this study in the discussion, the researchers felt it was important that they themselves had experience with meditation. Um, in order to be sensitive to the subject. However, they left out their personal experience with amphetamines, cocaine, opioids, cannabis, and hash, which was the focus of the intervention, um, which I found interesting. They were very clear to be like, we have experience in meditation and it gives us grounds as experts in this subject, leaving out the other stuff that they were studying. Um, so Sarah, I, I, I gotta go to you this to, to you first on this study as it's an intervention looking at drug use. And, you know, my first question is, it didn't seem to work for stimulants in this study. Um, you know, does, does, you know, my first question is, would this address poly drug use? Sure. Maybe if you're only using cannabis and you're Caucasian and you're and maybe if you know, a cod, some cannabis use disorder, cannabis use issues going on, maybe it'll help decrease it. Um, but, you know, just share with us some of your thoughts on this really interesting article. Yeah, I, I, you know, again, I found it fascinating, really, in the broader context of all of the articles that we're talking about today. And, you know, talk therapy, I, I don't know if it's fair to lump meditation into sort of like, you know, cognitive behavioral approaches, but, uh, you know, it's it certainly do, hasn't been the solution for everybody for the treatment of substance abuse. And I think for me as a pharmacologist and, you know, getting into the field of substance abuse research as a young and I was all about pharmacotherapies. Let's make drugs to cure drug addiction. And I was very dismissive um, of any other complementary or behavioral approach. Um, but I, you know, I, I think, you know, as I've gotten older and, you know, I'm in group therapy and aside from this podcast, it's the other favorite two hours of my week. Um, there's so much value in that. 
and and again i think what what i think all these articles are telling us moving forward is let's come up with ways to figure out how we can combine those two different thought processes of having some sort of behavioral intervention understanding what is it about that that can be a treatment for substance abuse as well as things like psychedelics um, or cannabis that are also being looked at as um, treatments for substance abuse uh, if not potentially being abused uh, substances themselves. So I think it was, you know, I, I think it was fun to go back in time. Like you were saying, I wasn't born yet. It was a year before I was born, uh, you know, looking uh, at these types of studies. And, um, you know, one, one way that I was thinking about it is, you know, you have these these two different approaches that we're talking about, the psychedelics for the treatment of substance use disorder versus behavioral modifications, is one better than the other? Is what benefit is there to adding something like psychedelics for the treatment of substance use disorder and paying attention to the side effects? And again, it brought me back to the synergy concept. You know, in the cannabinoid field, I my lab focuses on can we combine different cannabinoids at very low doses that are safer and will come up with a more effective treatment strategy. And I'm sort of thinking about this now with psychedelics or cannabis combined with mindfulness approaches, meditation. Can we figure out, is there some sort of sweet spot of synergy? Is it safe to combine those two things in the setting to, to come up with the best ways uh, to treat substance use disorders? But I thought it was, it was definitely fun to, to delve back <laughs> and, and look at this study for sure. Absolutely. You know, and Monica, you have a lot of certifications in yoga practice. And, and, and as I understand it, you know, yoga involves, as, as you mentioned earlier, breath work and focusing and, and some of the yoga practices I, I've been involved with involve, you know, sitting quietly and breathing and focusing inward. And, and, you know, even on just, I've noticed that it's made me more sensitive to, you know, if there's incense burning or someone's wearing patchouli oil or something, it just like makes me more sensitive to my environment. And, you know, given your experience, like real world experience in both of these areas, do you and feel free to use this as a departure point for the discussion, but do you feel that maybe the practice of a very specific type of meditation could make someone more sensitive to the effects of cannabis? Like if people are using cannabis for introspection and feeling more connected and, you know, traveling within as it were, and meditation's helping them get there too, that then maybe they're finding that part of the reason we might see this reduction is whatever effect they were looking for for meditation was being achieved with less cannabis. Do you think that's just, you know, ridiculous or, you know, what would be, you know, or, or feel free to just say what your takeaway was <laughs> on the article, but I just wanted to share with you my, uh, my little thought there. The, the article, yeah, it was a nice... <laughs> trip down before I was born, Lane. <laughs> to, 
Uh, but I, I want to see more articles like this. And I do appreciate the author saying, well, we'll at least gave it a try to, <laughs> um, to help with their interpretation. There are many different types of meditation. And for this one specifically, it was for smoking cessation. So there's a, a mental as well as a physical thing that they're fighting um, against or trying to overcome that, that person. So I think with certain meditations, if you focus on repetition or even visualization of when you're tempted that you don't go down that way, a lot of a lot of that thinking in your head creates new patterns in your in your thought process, which then affects how you're going to act in day to day world too. Uh, and then one thing that I, I also thought about is I know that in a lot of these uh, addiction recovery programs like AA, there is a moment of five minutes where they do a quick meditation. You just sit down and and breathe. And I think if anything, uh, entering a difficult situation like that, say you are a recovering alcoholic and you want, you're going to be at a bar or at an engagement with alcohol, a birthday party, having a tool where you could just pull yourself together five minutes a mantra or some of the saying that you say in your head, go in. If you're in your, your friends drinking next to you, you're struggling, run to the bathroom, say your mantra. Like, so I think that there's meditation can also um, implement different tools to help you overcome whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, yeah. Yeah. That outcome. So I did like the article, but I, I definitely, there, there, there's a lot of areas as a scientist, I'm like, okay, look at these type of meditations. There's a lot of components to it. There's a lot of poke in the holes, but we need more articles like this to get this discussion going. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, you brought up a good point, both Monica and Sarah is, you know, the group practice might be one of the keys here. You know, do you get the same effect if you're meditating on zoom with a bunch of people or, you know, if you're in the same room and you're practicing together um, and, and I absolutely love the idea of having different tools available to calibrate or, or um, yourself. Um, in challenging environments, it's it's really important. Um, you know, Nigam, you've been you've been quiet. Um, I'm sorry to wake you from your trance and your meditation there. Um, but uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, little trip down memory lane? This 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 article from the Wayback Machine. Yeah, I was meditating deeply on the conclusion. And I'll just uh, I'll speak to it quickly because we're getting a little short on HLI time. So. One thing that I want to say, and this is this is kind of more my belief, my practice, but it plugs in with what this article is saying, is that, and, and we've had some other guests say this too, like um, uh, Jocelyn was on the show recently. She said this thing that it's not about the drug. I could be tripping right now. I could be tripping off something bad that happened in my day, right? That's something that's stuck in my head. So and I'm thinking about that as I'm reading this and they're saying the uh, people who practice meditation more for longer uh, were able to reduce the, the drug intake, whatever that drug is. Let's just generically call it a drug, right? So, and to me also having a background, uh, so I'm half Indian, I have this background in kind of this Eastern lifestyle, meditation, um, all this stuff that the... The way I think about it is like the experience, the feeling that you get in your mind, and your body is the drug. So it's not about like this malt to me. It's not like you could achieve the same outcome, the same feeling with a substance or with a, an experience with a connection with a human or, or another living being. 
um, or through meditation and through your own kind of, um, how do we even say you're going into your own mind, your own thoughts, your own ness, right? So anyways, I kind of went on a little uh, tangent, like I said, of my own beliefs there, but I think that it makes a lot of sense that because I guess when it, let me say it in a different way is that these things I'm putting them in the same bucket, right? Because they all evoke this feeling or take you to a certain place in your mind or in your body or in your nest. So to me, it made sense that like meditation could displace a drug use in someone's life. And then um, I see Sarah has a, as a comment. Uh, I'm really curious what she's going to say after that. No, it just reminded me of what I was thinking uh, you know, as someone who's been going to therapy for over two years, it's like, do I think it's a cheat to use psychedelics as a way to achieve what I've been working so hard toward, uh, you know, and like, what's the goal? I think this is, you know, and again, like with AA, the goal is to be substance free. Does that make sense? Is that an antiquated goal? Is it, again, is it stigma coming in? Um you know, so I, I really appreciate what you said about it's like the goal is to achieve mindfulness, well-being, to be content, to, you know, going back to the senior citizen article to, uh, you know, be at peace with maybe demons from our past. And, you know, what's the general or personal comfort level with getting there drug free or is, you know, is this the best new tool to jumpstart things using substances to, to speed up the process, to enhance the process? So that's what I'm really fascinated by with sort of the, the theme that I see going through um, all of these different articles. And again, as a scientist and a researcher, what can we learn about what psychedelics, for example, do in the brain? Like, can we improve group therapy to maximally activate the serotonin 5-HT2C receptor? <laughs> to like, you know, like, what, what can we learn from each to tell us about what is, again, what is important? What about the trip in that elderly man got him to the place where he was and is, is the secret in those drugs or is the secret in the experience he was able to work out in his head and can we and do we want to try to do that without drugs there's a sorry and i just i i have to jump in here i know i i'm the one who said we're short on time but um <laughs> there's a there's this thing uh sarah we looked at this article before i don't recall if you're on that episode but um about mind med doing like this combo clinical trial mdma and lsd uh and now I'm thinking about combo stuff like, can they do a combo trial like you're saying with like mm -hmm. group therapy and psilocybin or whatever? And we've talked about that before too. Actually, I'm remembering a quote from you. I, mean, I think it was you and I were kind of chopping it up about there was a story or an article where they used some drug intervention for addiction or for whatever um, or for something. But then they also had talk therapy. And then you were like, yeah, maybe it was just talking that made them feel better. Maybe it's not right. the drug. So this kind of like we see this drug drug combo, but we don't really or at least I'm not seeing like a lot of great studies on exactly what you were kind of talking about, like 
what is the effect of being with other humans plus the drug? What is the effect mm-hmm. of meditation plus a drug or sand? So, so, so much interesting stuff to kind of tease out here in the next, you know, several years. Speaking of teasing things out and the set and setting, I think that brings us to our second scientific article from Pharmacology and Translational Science, um, an ACS journal. Uh, this article is entitled Set and Setting, a Randomized Study of Different Musical Genres in Supporting Psychedelic Therapy. Now, this study um, you know, looked at smoking cessation and psilocybin, but also the role that music played. Um, and I think their graphic in the study sums it up as either Western classical music or overtones. And they use a picture of a violin and a picture of a gong. And so uh, that's G-O-N-G, not B-O-N-G for the listener. Um, and so, uh, however, you know, listeners on their first session, uh, because the psilocybin experience takes many hours, um, were also allowed for their first session to bring in 60 minutes of their own music uh, as part of sort of, you know, after four hours after administration, they listened to that. But this music would be played you know, the Western or the overtone music played throughout the experience. So even if they took off their headphones and had to run to the bathroom, it would be playing on the speakers throughout the entire facility. So um, definitely they were, they were looking at the impact. Now, while I can understand, while the authors did not provide a link to a Spotify account, including all the participants' playlists, I can't forgive them for that. What uh, supplemental information that would have been? Yeah, My know. God, you know. <laughs> it's like I can't wait to take a road trip and listen to that playlist. That would be awesome. I think um, I'm gonna replicate this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah. How can we replicate <laughs> yeah. it if we don't have the tools? Maybe that's a new scientific product. Like Fisher Scientific will be like, you know, get your psychedelic playlist delivered to your lab uh, for your study. <laughs> Um, but but really a fascinating thing because because science definitely has accepted that set and setting do play a role in at a minimum the subjective effects of psychedelics, um, if not a role in their therapeutic outcomes. And so, you know, um, Nigam, you know, you haven't got to go first too many times, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pass it to you real quick. Um, and the first question I'll ask you is, and it's my favorite question, and usually your favorite thing to comment on is. What did you think of the size of this study? The number of people involved? Oh, man. I know. I didn't say anything about the other one. The other one was really low. <laughs> Let's see. Um, uh, how, oh, no. This one is a low one. 10. Awesome. Great. So I did want to share another thought, which was that it was pretty interesting having this comparison of like the classical music versus overtone music but something i couldn't help but think about was people wanting to like have their own their own music their own space and i think about this all the time when we see these studies and they're talking about going to the clinic and i'm just imagining being in like a doctor's office with fluorescent lighting and listening to classical music or these things that i'm not familiar with and jayhan you're even talking about take off the headphones maybe i don't want headphones pressing against my head during this experience, right? So anyways, I think the biggest thing that jumped out to me, other than the sample size, of course, Jay, honey, had to call it out. But um, other than that was just the, I don't know, it, it's it's such a personalized thing. I was just, I, I, it, I see them trying to like do this study with the music, but there's so many other 
variables, so many other things that matter for people in these experiential moments. So that was kind of the big takeaway for me. I'm not sure quite how much stake that I'll that I'll put in it, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I I hope someday we get to a point. Well, you know, I say it maybe a little facetiously that you know there'll be a doctor certified in Jimi Hendrix sound therapy, and you know you'll be like, ah, no, no, I like the ACDC guy. He really knows what's going on. Um, but these are fascinating aspects um, because we do know that music can affect the brain. There's been studies on like, you know, Mozart and can affect like transcription of certain genes and stuff, at least in, in rats, I hear, um, you know, but, but Sarah, you know, you've, you've shared a lot about your experiences with therapy and, um, you know, would, you know, if you walked into, you know, a place and they were playing some, you know, Bach, you know, orchestra music, or, you know, maybe some rock and roll, would one make you feel more comfortable or relaxed than the other? Or would you just be like, let's cut the music, um, you know? Uh, no, I mean, definitely the, you know, how you feel in the environment is is so critical. And I think that's one of the reasons why group therapy takes so long, because in the beginning, it's exceedingly uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, we're not used to those kinds of of situations and, you know, building comfort. I like what Nigam said about, <clears throat> like, I'm trying to think there have been some other studies I've read recently where I've felt this way. And some of them might've even been rodent studies, but I think there it's some human studies. I was thinking of like a person's choice. It's like, I think there were like, um, I think there were PTSD studies and they had like scripts that people read um, that might, activate a trauma and you like do a brain scan and it's like well how about you, the person writes their script <laughs> and like you know like what's relevant so one thing i was thinking based on what nigam said is you know i would love to see people listening to different types of music scan their brain see what their brain thinks of the music and then trying to link that up to what then might match up with the best uh, psychedelic experience. But I will say in defense of clinical studies, even though I'm not a uh, clinical pharmacologist, but many of my friends are, is that, I mean, I can test, you know, a thousand rats a year. That's not a big deal. But, you know, I know my friends, it's such a major challenge to execute these studies and the ends are always painfully small to the rest of us and to them as well. But it's a starting point. You know, I, I've, I'm glad that someone is starting somewhere with these kinds of studies. And there's a bazillion different factors, right? That we all want them to look at. Well, what if you looked at this and how about teasing apart that? What's the importance of where you're sitting? Who, who chose the music, blah, 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 blah. But I think because just because it's super hard and it's gonna be super slow and laborious, let's not not do it. Let's be patient and sort of, see what kind of information we can uh, glean from these studies. Excellent. Um, so Monica, what would be on your playlist if you were going to go, um, you know, you, you got to bring any, any album, would you be comfortable sharing with that? If you had to pick like one album or one artist and they're like, Hey, we're going to, you're going to be in the control group for this. Uh, we're going to put you in, we're going to see how your brain responds, you know, 
personally, I'd like to see how my brain responds to uh, the White Album or, or maybe Abbey Road. I think you know, mm. I'd like to see what centers light up when I when I'm listening to that. Um, but you know, if uh, if that's too tricky, you can just share your thoughts <laughs> about the article. <laughs> no, I'm actually quite. I'm one of my intentions for this year is to get back into music. I was really into music we, on, on our break. We're talking about, um, I, I played the oboe and the piano growing up and I've disconnected from that. Um, but I walked away from the article like, huh, okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I like that. They are looking at, they are acknowledging that the setting has a it's significant influence on the outcome. Um, I don't know if anyone here has done a sound bath before with a bunch of gongs and crystals. So that's one of my jams that I used to do um, back when we could <laughs> pre-COVID is um, you lay around and there's all of this different um, vibrations and someone comes in and there's there's training forces for it. And throughout these experiences, you can um, uh, y- y- it can invoke different feelings and vibrations and even at like mild hallucinations when I was completely sober. So I would love to see someone go into looking at different uh, rhythms, notes, um, and also different, uh, and just to see if we can build some big broad brushstrokes because there are so many variables with the experience. You know, we're seeing something interesting. Um, Let's see where we can hone in on. Um, But for me to answer your question, I think I would go with something a bit more mellow and, and wanting to keep a, uh, something that, that I can associate in a night in like a being in a good mood. And so that would be like what I would do for yoga playlist. No, no words, um, different rhythms, different instrumental uh, music in the background is what I would choose. Yeah. And, and Monica, what was the, 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 was it a sound bath that you described? Yeah. What was it called again? Yeah. I mean, not that I'm interested in doing it after we get off the podcast <laughs> or anything, but uh, well, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It sounded really cool. It is really yeah, no. awesome. Like we, um, they used to organize about once a month after our Friday night yoga class. Um, but basically you have someone come in, all these different <laughs> gongs, different crystal bowls, and she'll go by um, kind of what the energy, what's going on, the astrology. So it's going with this whole experience that she's, um creates for you but uh yeah each one sounds very different and it's if you look around if you look at sound bath you'll find one in your local area well um i'm gonna start with just taking a bath to see how that goes because uh and then um but i i think that's fascinating um idea maybe perhaps a good control for these future studies so so nigam you know a quick comment for you before we uh, start to wrap up yeah i just um wanted to share with everyone in my own kind of delve into this new realm of psychedelics companies and legality and all that i came across a few of these groups that are using sound music as the psychedelic it plugs back in with exactly what i was saying (laughs) to me the drug equals the feeling that the and i'm not talking about like uh, like blood pressure medication and stuff like that necessarily. I'm talking about more like psychoactive things. So can music be a drug? Can a person, your connection with a person be a drug? Can the meditation, your experience within yourself be the drug? Anyways, some people believe yes to the first one. And there's this company called Wave Paths. Um, it's wavepaths.com. I'm not super familiar with them, but I have come across them. And their whole thing is um, 
we provide adaptive music for psychedelic therapy and as psychedelic therapy. <laughs> so super cool. Just to, I just wanted to shout that out so folks can look into it and maybe we can delve into it more on a future episode. Excellent. Excellent. So I know we're running short on time. Uh, I have absolutely loved this discussion. Um, however, I would like to play a pare down game. So we're just going to take a quick 30 second break to catch our breath. And we'll come back with a very simple, very quick game for the listener who has managed to make it to the end of the podcast. At Marco and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. All right, welcome back. Today's game is going to be really simple. I'm going to give our group two headlines. One is real and one is completely made up. Um, and the grand prize that our participants are playing for today is for um, ex helping to expand scientific thought. So um, we are going to present the two headlines. You guys can either answer as a group or individually. Um, and so our two headlines are the first headline is people are more likely to try drugs for the first time during the summer. That is, again, that first headline, people are more likely to try drugs for the first time during the summer or pet on. <laughs> oh my God. Collect yourself, <laughs> I, I didn't ever read this headline out loud. <laughs> Please don't cut the laughter. It's too perfect. Do you, do you, need some, do you want me to read it? Do you need some help there? Uh, yeah, read it, nigga. Okay, I'm good. Read it. Pet owner claims microdosing his cat saved their relationship. Okay, let me try not to laugh again. Pet owner claims microdosing his cat saved their relationship. All right, so... Um, is it again, people are more likely to try drugs for the first time during the summer or pet owner claims microdosing his cat saves their relationship? <laughs> Wait, but what do you microdose his cat with though? <laughs> no, I need more You'll information have, to know. I'm going to say probably acid um, or LSD. <laughs> Wait, but that's interesting because don't, isn't it, Monica, you probably know about this. Isn't it like a common thing that cats drug metabolism is like drastically different? I think cats can take a lot, like you have to give a cat a lot higher dose to achieve the same effect. I'm pretty sure that's I, I, I don't know because we typically dose dogs, not cats oh, in these studies. Sarah, we got dogs, we got mice, we got people. Yeah. Rabbits. <laughs> We've done rabbits, guinea pigs. I've even done a cow, but I've never dosed a mm. cat before. <laughs> we did cover that CBD article with a depressed elephant. <laughs> yeah. And discussed how expensive that stuff oh, was. Man, so I wonder sad. how he's doing. We need to get a follow-up on should. that. We should send an email but, about that. That's, yeah. But um, as someone who so I'll speak as someone who has a psychotic cat. Um <laughs> can you see him in the back? Yeah, I see him okay. back there, there too. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, where's my microdose? Yeah, I, I've got to go with number two. I think I think number two 
could definitely happen in the real world. So I'm going to number two is the real story, Jahan. Okay, and one is real, one is false, like hard, hard. Yeah, okay. hardcore. One, one that is absolutely true. I didn't try to be too tricky. I thought about doing two real ones, um, uh, but but note to myself, I should practice reading these out loud before <laughs> I play the game. Um, but you know, so so we have Sarah saying that um, people are more likely to try drugs the first time during the summer is. Um, is the made-up headline and the one about the pet owner uh, claims microdosing his cat saved the relationship is the real one. Um, Nigga, Monica, do you agree with Sarah or do you have your own thoughts? I, I think both of these have a lot of potential to be real things, but I just don't know which one is the real headline. Um, but just because I know we're like short on time, I'm going to go with Sarah. I think the pet owner thing was in the news. And then I think the other thing is maybe just a sentiment that is real. Ah, Okay. (laughs) And Monica, are you going to, are you going to go with peer pressure here? Are you going to think outside the litter box? (laughs) Oh, good one. (laughs) I'm only, I, because it's a headliner, it's meant to grab your attention. I think it's, I want it to be untrue, but I do think it's true, especially with all the hype that we're seeing here. So I'm going to, I'm going to stay with the, with the litter box. <laughs> okay. Well, let's say, so, uh, f- and for you listener and our participants, for those of you that thought um, that, you know, a pet owner microdosing his cat to save the relationship sounded a little too far-fetched. Well, that's because it is. I made that one up. So the other headline comes from Science Daily, which reported on a study looking at people, um, and they're more likely to try drugs for the first time during the summer. Um, but uh, <laughs> but thank you. But uh, you know, good job, everyone. I can't believe you fell for that one because <laughs> I couldn't even get through it when I wrote that. I didn't. I just thought it was cute. I I should have really practiced saying it loud. It made me laugh so hard. You got to sell that but... to somebody, Jayhan. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it grabbed that. That's worth at least like fifty bucks somewhere. You, well, know? you, know, I, you were laughing that you didn't make it up. That you got to yeah, like, like... You laughing was 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 perfect. Yeah, I like, completely got us on the wrong trail. He even surprises himself. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I even amaze myself, to quote Han Solo. All right. Well, that's our show for Meow. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. The show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. Big thank you to Joe. And be sure to check out each podcast episode's custom artwork made by Selena Lee. Thank you so much for the awesome graphics that you provide for each episode. Be sure to check out Selena Lee's watermelon series on her website. It is fantastic. Even if you don't eat watermelon or don't like it, it is still really cool artwork. All right. Thank you so much and hope to have you back on the show.